Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about something pretty exciting. This week, you'll get two chances to hear from me because I'll be making a guest appearance on Nina Instead's Already Gone podcast. If you haven't listened to Already Gone yet, you need to check it out. Nina does a fantastic show talking about some of the most heinous crimes from Michigan and the surrounding area. This week we'll be discussing the case of Lawrence Delisle, a man who drove his car containing his wife and kids into the Detroit River. So be sure to check out Already Gone this Thursday, February 16th when the show releases. And now, on with my show. By the late 19th century, it was widely believed that all the greatest treasures of Egypt had already been found. Hundreds of years of archaeological digs and looting had taken its toll on the treasures of Egypt. And by the 1890s, most believed all the really good stuff was either already on display in some museum, in the hands of some private collector, or worse, melted down and resold for the gold and precious gems. If you asked most any contemporary Egyptologist back in the day, they'd tell you that all there was left to find were a few odd trinkets and other historical curiosities. In 1897, a young Englishman named Howard Carter arrived in Egypt hoping to prove all the other experts wrong. His research had led him to believe there might still be one great untouched tomb, that of King Tutankhamun, a little-known pharaoh of the 18th dynasty who ruled around the year 1332 BC. Carter came to believe that King Tut's tomb was somewhere in the Valley of Kings, a desolate region near the Nile River across from the ancient city of Thebes, the site of modern-day Luxor. In 1914, Carter convinced a British aristocrat named Lord Carnarvon to finance an expedition into the Valley of Kings to find the tomb. And for the next seven years, Carter's search came up empty. In 1922, Carnarvon summoned Carter back to England, where he told the young Egyptologist he was calling off the search. Carter talked Lord Carnarvon into financing the expedition for one more season. This time, when Carter returned to Egypt, he brought with him his pet canary. Carter's foreman was delighted by the bird. He was a spiritual man, and he thought the bird would bring them good fortune and help them locate the tomb. Well, he was half right anyway. On November 4, 1922, Carter's workmen uncovered the ancient doorway to King Tut's tomb. Carter was elated. This was the moment he'd devoted his life and career to. Everything he'd worked so hard to find was now only meters away behind a stone chamber door. That evening, when he returned home, still basking in the afterglow of the discovery, a servant met him at the door clutching a few yellow feathers. It seems a cobra had eaten Coward Carter's pet canary. The servant was wide-eyed and terrified. Not of the cobra. This was Egypt, after all, and cobras were a known threat. No, the servant was petrified of what the bird's death represented. The spirits were clearly angry. The servant begged Howard Carter not to open the tomb. He said the canary was just the first sign that the tomb mustn't be disturbed, and that more bad things would happen if they breached the chamber. 
Carter had no time for such superstitious nonsense. This was his life's work, after all, and his reputation was on the line. He ordered the servant to dispose of the bird's remains and to rid the house of the cobra, and he didn't want to hear another word about bad luck or evil spirits. Carter sent a telegram back to England encouraging Lord Carnarvon to hurry to Egypt so he could be there when they cracked open the tomb. Carnarvon was there on November 26th, standing just behind Carter when the Egyptologist chiseled a small hole through the chamber door. Carter peered by candlelight through the hole he'd just made. Carnarvon asked him if he could see anything. Yes. Wonderful things, was Carter's famous reply. You've undoubtedly seen some of those wonderful things they found that day, including the boy king's famous gold burial mask. King Tut's tomb is certainly one of the greatest archaeological finds of ancient Egypt, or at the very least, one of the flashiest. But the treasures they found that day aren't the only reason King Tut's tomb is so famous. You see, the canary's death was just the first one associated with the opening of the tomb, but it wouldn't be the last. Not long after, the first death occurred among the people associated with the tomb's opening. That was followed by another, and another, and another. So many strange deaths occurred after the tomb was opened that many people claimed there could be only one logical explanation. It was cursed. I'm Nate Hale, and I want my mummy. And this is The Conspirators. Do you believe in curses? It's okay if you say you don't. Rational thinking states that curses don't exist, and that what we think of as curses are just manifestations of our own superstitions, or just plain coincidences. Throughout all of human history, you can find many examples of curses and evil spells that were cast in order to cause harm to others. Curses were an easy way for our ancestors to explain away why terrible events occurred, and why certain people fell victim to tragedy. It wasn't an earthquake that destroyed the village. It was the gods that were angry for some transgression committed by the villagers. Your child was born with a deformity? It must be because the creepy old woman who lived by herself on the outskirts of town cast an evil spell on the mother. But rational thinking can explain away most everything. And when you think about it logically, curses can't be real, can they? And they certainly can't kill. Right? Lord Carnarvon was the first and most famous death associated with King Tut's tomb. A few months after the tomb was opened, Carnarvon fell ill and was rushed to Cairo for medical attention. He died just a few days later. Some people say he was killed by an infected insect bite, although officially the exact cause of death remains unknown. So the legend claims that at the same moment that Carnarvon died, there was a brief power outage throughout Cairo, and hundreds of miles away in England, Carnarvon's prized dog suddenly dropped dead. As further proof that people pointed to when they claimed Carnarvon had fallen victim to King Tut's curse, when the pharaoh's mummy was unwrapped in 1925, it supposedly had a wound on the left cheek in the very same place where the insect allegedly bit Lord Carnarvon. By 1929, 11 people connected to the tomb's discovery had died of unusual causes. 
This included Lord Carnarvon's personal secretary, Richard Bethel, and Bethel's father, who committed suicide by jumping off a building, leaving behind a suicide note in which he claimed he couldn't go on being victimized by some unidentified horrors that had been haunting him. By 1935, a total of 21 deaths were being attributed to the curse of King Tut's tomb, and the story was being widely circulated in every major newspaper. In recent years, statisticians have pointed out that the number of deaths aren't particularly unusual, and the idea of the curse was more likely the result of an overzealous press trying to sell papers. Consider this. The average age of death of most of the people who were allegedly killed by the curse was 70. Suddenly when you hear that, the idea of a bunch of elderly people dying doesn't seem quite so mysterious after all, does it? Even the death of Lord Carnarvon might have its own explanation, although, granted, it's a pretty weird one. Some scientists have suggested that Lord Carnarvon may have been exposed to a particularly deadly variety of black mold spores inside the tomb. This is a known problem, and today modern archaeologists will typically wear respirators upon entering a new tomb. And as for the power outage, Cairo had a pretty spotty electrical system during the early 20th century, and was often prone to outages. Probably the biggest piece of evidence that there's not much to the curse is the fact that one person in particular seems to have taken a sweet time succumbing to it. Of all the people involved in the tomb's opening, you'd think the curse would have struck Howard Carter first. But he didn't die until 1939, a full 17 years after the tomb's opening. That's a pretty slow-acting curse if you ask me. But even though we can easily explain away the mummy's curse, there are still other instances of supposed curses throughout history that make you scratch your head and wonder. Back in April 1991, police in Seattle, Washington received a request to check on a man named Christopher Case, a 35-year-old radio broadcaster who hadn't been heard from in a few days. When officers went to the man's apartment, they discovered a bizarre scene. On the man's front porch, someone had drawn some strange symbols and lines of salt. They checked the door and found it locked, Police left and returned some time later, only this time, the door was now open. When they went inside, they found a bunch of spent candles and crucifixes arranged around the apartment. More lines of salt were poured around the baseboards, and there, in the bathroom, they found Christopher Case dead in his bathtub. He was fully dressed, and there was no water in the tub. There was no sign of a struggle, nor any other signs of foul play. The coroner would eventually rule Case's cause of death a heart attack. Okay, you say to yourself, that's all weird, but nothing too unusual. But that's only part of the story. It was strange enough that a 35-year-old man would suffer a fatal heart attack. But Case's friends swore he was a health nut who didn't drink, didn't smoke, and was seriously into health food and vitamins. The reason Case's friends had asked the police to check on him in the first place was because of the strange way he'd been behaving shortly before his death. Although Case's friends swore he hadn't been the superstitious type, in the weeks prior, the man became convinced that he'd been cursed. Several weeks earlier, Case had gone to San Francisco where he had dinner with an acquaintance who introduced him to a woman who claimed to be a witch. Case told a friend of his that he'd asked the woman for help in researching a music project he was working on. But according to Case... 
the woman misinterpreted his interest in her musical knowledge for a romantic gesture. After Case rebuffed her attentions, he believed the woman didn't take it so well, and she cursed him. In the days that followed, Case began calling his friends, telling them how more and more afraid he was becoming. His voicemail messages became increasingly erratic and sounded nothing like the man they knew. Case claimed the woman was attacking him psychically and causing him to have nightmares. Nightmares that manifested themselves in the physical world. Namely, strange cuts he began waking up with on the tips of his fingers. Christopher Chase began to research methods to ward off evil spirits and curses. That's when he learned that salt can be used to ward off evil. He also contacted a spiritualist in California who was going to perform a ritual to ward off evil spirits. That was the last any of his friends heard from Christopher Chase before he was found dead. Now granted, it could have been Case's own overactive imagination and fear that literally scared him to death. Or perhaps it was just pure coincidence. For example, maybe Chase had a previously unknown heart condition. Still, knowing what we know now, it kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On October 30th, 1947, Bertha Clute of Tacoma, Washington, awoke in the middle of the night to see a man standing over her bed brandishing an axe. Bertha screamed. Her daughter Beverly rushed into the bedroom to see why her mother was screaming. But by the time she got there, her mother was already dead. The man with the axe chased Beverly out of the room and bludgeoned her to death as well. Neighbors heard the screams and contacted police, who arrived just in time to see a barefoot African-American man racing out the back door. They chased him across several yards before cornering him behind a tall fence. The man pulled out a knife and wounded two officers before they were finally able to apprehend him. The man's name was Jake Bird, and it turns out he was a former railroad worker turned transient who'd had numerous run-ins with the law. He had a lengthy rap sheet that included numerous violent crimes and burglary charges. He claimed he broke into Bertha Clute's home looking for money to buy himself shoes, although later it was revealed that he raped Bertha Clute before murdering her. It only took a day and a half for the jury to find Bird guilty of Bertha's murder. Prosecutors hadn't tried him for the death of Beverly yet. Just in case the jury failed to find him guilty of the first murder, they wanted a backup. But this case was pretty much open and shut. Bird's own signed confession was just the icing on the cake. He was found guilty of first-degree murder, and Judge Hodge sentenced the man to death by hanging. Later... As Bird was being transported to death row at Washington State Penitentiary, he confessed to having been involved in 44 separate murders, making him one of the most prolific serial killers in America. This also helped clear the books of 11 previously unsolved killings. But it wasn't the man's body count that made him famous. 
At least not the people he murdered with his own hands, that is. Back during Bird's sentencing hearing, just as the defense and prosecution were making their final statements, Bird stood up and said to the courtroom, I'm putting the hex of Jake Bird on all of you who had anything to do with my being punished. Mark my words, you will die before I do. Shortly after Bird's conviction, Judge Hodge dropped dead of a heart attack. Not long after that, the prosecutor died of a heart attack as well. This was followed by a guard at Washington State Penitentiary, as well as the police officer who took Bird's confession, both of whom also died of mysterious heart attacks. On top of all those, the court clerk from Bird's trial contracted pneumonia, and you guessed it, died. On July 15, 1949, Jake Bird was led to the gallows. After he was finally dead and buried, it appears the curse, if it existed at all, was broken, and no more strange deaths occurred. Of course, we remember this case because of the curse Jake Bird cast on the people he felt who wronged him. If you think of all the people who are convicted of crimes each year, I'm sure you'll agree that a lot of those probably cursed the judge and everyone else who put them behind bars. Yet we never hear of anything strange happening in those cases. Bird really had no one to blame but himself. He was a horrible person. A serial killer who took the lives of nearly 50 people. There is one case, though, that involves a young man who was very likely falsely accused of a brutal crime, whose curse against those who wronged him appears to have killed a startling number of people. On Halloween, 1983, a 76-year-old nun named Sister Tadea Benz was brutally raped, murdered, and mutilated in Amarillo, Texas. Early on, police arrested a suspect named Fernando Flores, a Cuban immigrant with a history of rape and other crimes in Cuba. Flores matched witness descriptions of an individual seen near the crime scene, and he was later picked out of a photo lineup by one of the witnesses. But investigators were unable to match Flores to some of the physical evidence left at the scene, so they eventually released him. But the public demanded the police make an arrest. They quickly found another suspect after they received a tip from a local clairvoyant who went by both the names Inez, and I swear I'm not making this up, Bubbles. The clairvoyant claimed she'd had a vision that the killer was a teenage male, 5 feet 11 inches tall, slender, with an olive complexion. He had dark hair and an Abe Lincoln face, with a large nose and ears. She claimed he'd been wearing a large wig during the attack and that he was somehow associated with the name Clyde. Also, the psychic said, the killer lived near the convent in a small white frame house with dirty hardwood floors. Bubbles and a fellow clairvoyant decided to drive around the neighborhood to see if they could find the house, and, surprise, surprise, they did. It was right across the street from the convent, and right there in the yard was a doghouse with the name Clyde written on it. A couple days later, police arrested the person who lived in the house, a mentally disabled 17-year-old man named Johnny Frank Garrett, and he fit the description Bubbles had given almost perfectly. Police claimed it wasn't the psychic's tip that led them to Garrett. Rather, it was the recollection of a patrolman who claimed he'd seen Garrett acting suspiciously in the vicinity of the convent right around the time of the murder. Police also claimed they found two fingerprints matching Garrett inside the convent. Garrett admitted that he had broken into the convent at an earlier date and might have left the fingerprints, 
but he swore he had nothing to do with the murder. Johnny had a particularly inept lawyer and a team of prosecutors and police who appeared to be out to get him. Evidence appeared to have been fabricated to implicate him in the crime, while other evidence that could have cleared him was suppressed. Police pressured him into signing a confession, and after that, Johnny Frank Garrett's fate was sealed. Despite nine years of appeals, Garrett was executed by lethal injection on February 11, 1992. Garrett's famous last words were, I'd like to thank my family for loving and taking care of me, and the rest of the world can kiss my ass. Years later, long after Garrett was dead, evidence surfaced that pointed the finger of blame at a 54-year-old prison inmate named Leoncio Perez Ruida, who allegedly confessed to raping and murdering a nun, as well as testing positive in a DNA match to a similar rape and murder a few months after the crime Johnny Frank Garrett was accused of. None of this came up in Garrett's trial, nor did it have any effect on his appeals. To this day, Johnny Frank Garrett has never been legally exonerated for the crime. Along with his famous last words, Garrett also left behind a letter he'd written in which he cursed all the people involved in implicating him in the rape and murder. As with all curses, it's likely just coincidence that makes it appear there was something supernatural at work. But when you hear the list, you have to admit it makes for a pretty striking set of coincidences. Juror Novella Sumner died after falling down a flight of stairs. Juror Nathan Shackelford's daughter died from an accidental gunshot wound to the head. His sister was run over and killed by a drunk driver. Garrett's trial lawyer, Bill Coleus, died of pancreatic cancer. Garrett's first appellate lawyer, Bruce Sadler, and post-conviction trial judge, Sam Kaiser, contracted the same form of leukemia. Kaiser died after initially being cured. His healthy bone marrow, which was collected in case of recurrence, inexplicably disappeared from the hospital. Jimmy Don Boydson, one of the lead investigators on the case, contracted leukemia and died. Officer Walt Yerger also died of leukemia. NBC reporter Kathy Jones died in an airplane crash in Oklahoma while covering a story. Medical examiner Ralph Erdeman was convicted of numerous felonies for falsifying autopsy reports. His medical license was revoked and he was sent to prison. His wife died of pancreatic cancer. A jailhouse snitch named Watley who testified against Garrett for a reduced sentence committed suicide. Carol Moore, Garrett's schoolteacher who testified against him at trial, also committed suicide. District Attorney Danny Hill also committed suicide. His daughter hung herself a few years later. One of Garrett's many appellate attorneys, Jeff Blackburn, lost his wife when she committed suicide. His son was accidentally locked inside a hot car in Houston and is permanently brain damaged. Governor Ann Richards contracted cancer twice and finally succumbed to esophageal cancer. You can look at this list, like the list of deaths that followed Jake Bird's hex, as nothing more than being a series of coincidences. People get sick and die all the time. It's the sheer number of tragic events that followed Johnny Frank Garrett's execution that makes you wonder, though. In each of these cases I've described, the main reason we remember most of them is because of the large body count each of these supposed curses left behind. There's one story in particular, though, that undoubtedly tops them all for the largest number of deaths. 
You've undoubtedly heard of the great conqueror Genghis Khan. I plan on doing a show about him in the future. But Khan's legacy didn't end with him. His children and grandchildren each carried on Genghis's bloody legacy and did their best to live up to the conqueror's reputation for brutality. Timur Khan, Genghis's grandson, led a horrific campaign that cut a bloody swath from Persia to southern Russia that would have made Grandpa proud, right down to the pyramid of more than 70,000 skulls he left behind in North India. Timur, or Tamerlane as he was also known, was a pretty nasty piece of work. He personally plunged the world into 35 years of war and conquest, killing about 17 million people, or roughly 5% of the population on Earth at the time. Tamer died in 1405, and he was interred in the Guriere complex of Samarkand, Uzbekistan, a massive green jade slab that had once been used as a throne for Kabak Khan was laid over Tamer's tomb. The slab was adorned with Arabic text proclaiming Tamer's greatness, along with a warning against anyone attempting to mess with Tamer's grave. When I rise from the grave, the world will tremble, the message said. For more than 500 years, pretty much everyone abided by the warning and left the grave alone. That is until 1941 when Joseph Stalin sent some Soviet archaeologists to excavate Tamer's gravesite. He likely did this to compete with some of the major archaeological finds the Third Reich had made in Egypt and elsewhere throughout the world. That seemed to be a thing that Stalin and Hitler had in common. A few Muslim elders warned the expedition not to open the tomb, but they did it anyway and brought Tamer's corpse back to Moscow for examination. Whether you believe in curses or not, you have to admit it's still one heck of a coincidence that less than two days later, Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa on Russia, the largest and most brutal invasion of World War II. The subsequent battles cost the Soviet Union the lives of millions of soldiers and civilians. Then on December 20th, 1942, the Russians finally returned Timur to his tomb, giving him a proper Islamic burial. Shortly after... The last German invasion of Stalingrad failed decisively, effectively ending the war for the Soviet Union. The curse, it seemed, was broken. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much to all my faithful listeners. I also wanted to mention that we've added a donate button to our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, in order to help with the cost of producing this show week after week. Special shout out to Judith for donating to the show. Also, just a reminder that you can help us out by signing up for a 30-day free trial of Audible at audibletrial.com slash theconspirators. Just for signing up, you can download a free audiobook that's yours to keep. One last thing you can do to help us out is by subscribing to us on iTunes and leaving us a positive review. Our show is also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and of course our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and be sure to check out the Already Gone podcast this Thursday, February 16th, when I'll be making a special guest appearance with the show's host, Nina Instead. See you there. <laughs>